0: happening now. We'd like to welcome our viewers from across North America and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room, episode 288. No, that'd be a little bit high. Episode 228 for the 18th of August, 2021. My name is Wes Fryer. I'm coming to you from Oklahoma City, where we had our first day back with students and my first day to have my sixth grade advisees and uh, it's actually a, a lovely, cool evening. Um, took the dogs for a walk. Unfortunately, the water in our neighborhood got shut off about 8 o'clock, so we're hoping that's going to come back on, but um, otherwise, it is a great evening in central Oklahoma. So joining me as always, coming to us from the land of Missoula, Montana, and sometimes smoky summer. It's Dr. Jason Neifer. Jason, how is life in Missoula
1: tonight? Well, it's rainy here, so we're quite thankful for that. It's been, uh, in fact, it started raining late last evening, and it's been on and off today, and it's probably going to be on and off tomorrow, Friday, Saturday, in um, Sunday so we're real excited about that and hopefully bring us some relief from the fires and I know that it smelled a lot nicer outside than it has in the last couple of weeks but yes indeed I am the assistant director and curriculum director of the Montana Digital Academy Montana State Virtual School located right here in Missoula Montana on the beautiful University of Montana campus but of course we're not here to talk about the weather although I as <laughs> a Montana I love talking about the weather but what is the EdTech situation room all about Dr. Fryer? We have
0: compiled, as always, a list of links of technology-related news, and we've put all that on a Google Doc that you can access at edtechsr.com slash links. Our categories tonight are Google, Microsoft, OKZoomer, OK Security, Podcasting, Social Media, Crypto, and NFTs, and then, of course, our Geek of the Week, so... Dr. Neifer, where would you like to begin tonight's discussion?
1: Well, let's start here. Um, there are a, a couple of big headlines right now in security. And in fact, that's what we were talking a little bit about pre-show. So let's start there. This is more or less a warning that I'm sure almost every uh, uh, K-12 tech director in America has is has already aware of because it's been well covered in the technology media. But PC Magazine reported on August 14th, the ransomware campaigns are continuing to exploit the so-called print nightmare which is the vulnerability in Windows uh, operating systems with the print spooler and um the uh this has been around for a while and I look back, I don't think we I think we had an article on this a couple weeks back, but we didn't talk about it. But there is a a set of vulnerabilities in the print spooler. That's the software that basically communicates between your computer and your printer to kind of gather up print jobs and then send them off to a printer for printing purposes and as it turns out there's been a long time vulnerability there that was finally found and has been exploited by a number of hackers including uh, ransomware uh, attack hackers and um uh, the, the particular pc magazine article talks about part of the problem with dealing with this particular piece of software is that you have to disable the print spooler uh to, to be totally protected, but, of course, that means you can't print then. And uh, while printing is, is a lot less than it used to be, my guess is in the typical school, the printer is still a well-used piece of machinery across um, the landscape of K-12. So uh, Microsoft continues to – I think they have a patch out for the original version of the exploit. Then the exploit is um, – uh, there's been other uh, 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 things exploit in the print spooler. So it's been kind of an ongoing issue of the past four weeks or so, but in case you are a tech director or you are a very part-time tech director, which is also the case in a lot of cases, I just want to make our audience aware.
0: You know, I, among many things, I'm thankful for not having that responsibility in our school anymore. It's interesting, you know, we, um, have moved to, to Chrome entirely for students, um, at, at the middle school level. Uh, I know Chrome, (laughs) there's, we, we were running prints, we were running, um, Google Cloud Print, but we're needing to do it on legacy devices. And so we were running, you know, print, installing printers on Windows servers that would then connect to Cloud Print and, Anyway, this, this doesn't address cloud print, but it does remind me of that and make, and I don't know what Google's done as a replacement for that, but I would just say we all need to move forward into the 21st century with printing, um, paper cut was one of the, the, the mm-hmm. platforms we were trying to, to implement. In fact, our local blood bank, the Oklahoma blood Institute, they have nice little signs up by their printers, you know, that they're using paper cut and you scan in and put in your code to, you know, print and whatever like that. So, um. I have not heard about, you know, local folks being being affected by that. But I will say on the topic of printing, I don't think we've gotten a printer for maybe ten years or something. And I talked to my my in-laws, and we've picked up a uh HP printer with this subscription ink thing. And we have four months free. We can print like seven hundred pages in color per month for like the next four months, and then we're like five dollars a month or something. So anyway, it's um. Yeah. Printing is with us. We're not able to abandon it entirely, but it's, um, you know, ransomware is, you know, continues to be a huge threat, not only for hospitals and all kinds of of enterprises, but schools as well. And phishing and social engineering attacks continue to be the primary vector where folks are getting inside your network and being able to, you know, do these these bad things. So I'm, uh, yeah, glad to be out of that business, but happy to pass along the news and encourage folks to you know take care and and make sure that whoever is responsible is aware of of those threats so this is where you know out outsource services and things like that can be really beneficial for folks who are you know not perhaps not juggling as many balls and being able to to stay laser focused on you know certain things like that so i don't know how many people are doing that for their printing services but it would be be good to be able to bring you know professionals to bear on Well, we're all professionals here, but anyway, (laughs) a, a, a contracted, uh, you know, entity, you know, possibly for some of that kind of stuff. So I'll, I'll, I'll say one last thought is everyone needs a ransomware plan, right? We were, we had just developed some of that, you know, in concert with one of our insurance folks and, you know, what kind of a plan would we have? If we have this kind of attack, do we know, you know, our course of action of, of what we do? Um, it really is something important for every organization to plan for, just like you would for other kinds of contingencies.
1: So. Absolutely. And then I know that I think we both shared an article here, but why don't you talk about what's going on at our friends at T-Mobile.
0: Yeah. So huh, this is something that came out as a rumor uh, and then has been confirmed by T-Mobile um, Jason dropped in the verge article, T-Mobile investigating report of customer data breach that reportedly involves hundred million people. And then, um, that was from the, from August 15th. And then I dropped in the Engadget article from today that, uh, is a confirmation from T-Mobile, uh, T-Mobile confirms data breach affects over 47 million people. So, um, I think in the article that I dropped in, uh, we were just talking pre-show. Like, yeah, what are we gonna do? Are you gonna do something here? Uh, you have a variety of of options when you believe, if, for instance, that let's say your social security number and your phone number are breached. The way that this came out actually was a individual on the dark web was talking about selling thirty or forty million customer. Data um, data sets or whatever uh, with socials and phone numbers and everything. And uh, I think they were asking something like it was it was in pounds, but it was the equivalent of like two or three hundred thousand dollars. Anyway, you you can do a fraud alert. Uh, You can go all the way up to a freeze, and some of those things can involve some cost. The freeze I think is supposed to be free, but it's harder to undo. Um, And we were talking about that the fraud alert requires extra levels of identification if somebody's going to, um, you know, draw out uh, credit or, or ask for credit in your name. So some people will say in today's day and age, that's just something smart to do. If you're not going to be getting credit for something, then freeze your credit because you don't want someone to, you know, take out credit and have to have to clean up that mess. And it's been probably almost 20 years, but we had a friend in Lubbock, you know, until her daughter, I think, went to college and then for whatever reason, because of furniture or car or something, she finally applied for credit and was like, oh, well, your credit is, is terrible because, you you know, you took this out several years ago and never paid it back. And they're like, what was that? And they had no idea that this had happened. So eh, what, are, what are your thoughts, Dr. Knifer? Is this uh, Chicken Little or do T-Mobile customers need to really pay attention here?
1: Well, um, I know that the, it's, it's kind of breaking news that, uh, T-Mobile is confirming the, um, the situation. This was a rumor. I believe it was as, 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 uh, recently, or I'm sorry, as late as Sunday, I believe is when I was reading that, that this may have been a factor. But, I mean, I, I, you know, I'd like to say it's a reality of the 21st century in the way data is stored. But the bottom line is, is that, I mean, how many, you know, how many truly terrible things have happened in the last 10 years, uh, related to personal data being, um, uh, a stolen. And in the case of something like T Mobile, there's just no excuse. You know, you're a massive size, uh, corporation with, with tens of millions of customers. And it's, um, you know, it's unexcusable, you know, not to have top, top flight security. So I'm assuming we'll get to know more about this, right? And no system, uh, has, at least yet has, is 100% secure, but it's, well, you know, important to think about.
0: That, that's what I was going to say is there? there's a huge target on the back of, of every, you yeah. know, internet service provider and someone like that who has literally millions and millions of, uh, of, of customer information. And one of the dangers, and I don't know if we've got this article in here, we, we've been talking about two-factor authentication and some of the risks and things like that of using, you know, text messaging and, um, you know, One of the reports was saying that the IMEI number, IMEI number, I think that's right, uh, you know, that you have for your devices um, as well as your phone numbers and all this information. I mean, if if folks have that critical information, you know, they very well might be able to call in and, you know, say, hey, I've changed my, my, my cell phone. Can you swap my SIM card and, you know, then be able to whatever that's called SIM hack you. And, you know, you're, they're then able to verify your account information and and get, get access to perhaps your, your Gmail account, whatever your primary email account is. And then, Whoa, they're off, off to the races. So um, I think it's, it's a sign of the times, of course, but it's also a sign that nothing is really unhackable. And depending upon how many resources that an entity has, whether that's a nation state or a criminal group or whatever, Um, you know, they are, it is possible to penetrate and it's possible to compromise, uh, just about any system that's out there. Um, the article that I put in from Engadget notes that this is the third such attack that T-Mobile has suffered in the past two years. So, um, Peggy had mentioned, I think, switching to to T-Mobile, um, a few months back. I mean, I love T-Mobile. I'm, I'm happy with them, um. But, you know, it's it probably is the kind of thing that in addition to having our password managers and auditing our accounts and trying to make sure every everything has a unique and long and complex password, we've got two factor turned on. We also have our credit frozen um, or a fraud alert at least put on. I don't know that we need to be spending money. The, the freeze it, it, by federal law I was reading is supposed to be free. Um, there are some things that the credit agencies can charge you for. Uh, T-Mobile is promising affected customers, you know, as they typically do two free years of McAfee's ID theft protection service. Um, They are recommending everyone changes their PIN number um, and they're also going to set up an online resource page. So perhaps by the time we publish this uh, site, that page will be up and we'll also link that. But um, yeah, whether you're a T-Mobile customer or not you know, have I been pwned, right? Go go to that site, take a look at the the passwords that have been compromised, certainly compromises that involve social security numbers, phone numbers, dates of birth, you know, um, th- that's just sort of the, you know, key vital information that, that we have for ourselves. So it is, I think, not something to be ignored. And, you know, even better, uh, be proactive, you know. If you're not a T-Mobile customer, fine. Uh, Be proactive and consider if you're not going to be using credit in the next, you know, next few months, maybe a good idea to put a credit freeze on there. But if you are a T-Mobile customer, it sounds like fraud alert at a minimum would be a wise thing to do.
1: Yep. And I shared a link in um, our show notes that um, we'll put in the, I'm sorry, in in the uh, documents and put in our show notes from the Federal Trade Commission about, uh what to know about credit freezes and fraud alerts and it kind of goes through the different levels the difference between a credit freeze and a fraud alert and there's also an extended fraud alert you can do too yep um and it tells you how how to do it in the case of a uh, credit freeze you have to contact all three credit bureaus TransUnion Experian and Equifax um the fraud alert uh you can just contact one of the three you don't have to contact all three because they contact each other um that uh uh it makes it harder for someone to open up a new line of credit And
0: Peggy's asking about the connection between freezing your credit and the T-Mobile hack. So supposedly part of the T-Mobile hack is your social security number. And so using your social security number with your date of birth, with your address, um, folks can try to take out credit. And and many times people do. So as a proactive step to prevent identity theft or stop identity theft, which may be tied to this T-Mobile hack, of course, it could be tied to something else. It's a wise, proactive thing to do to put a freeze on your credit so that the bad guys will not try to take out credit in your name, um, which, of course, they would have no intention of paying back. And, you know, that's identity theft. And so this would be a proactive step to try to prevent identity theft and stave it off. So, and the fact that T-Mobile is saying right now, change your PIN number. Hey, we should all do that, right? If you're a T-Mobile customer, um, time to change your PIN. And the, the PIN is, you know, one of those extra pieces of information that they ask for in order to make change, to access your account and then to make changes to your account. So, um, Peggy's asking if it affects your credit rating. I don't think it does in terms of, of, uh, putting a fraud alert or, or a freeze on it, but I, I don't know. I'm. I'm not an expert. Um, but I would um, say that the the benefits of preventing a identity theft uh, act where somebody's taking you know credit out on your name is going to be worth a penalty if it's available. But I've I haven't actually ever heard of that. I know when you have inquiries on your credit that that can just like taking credit out affect your credit score. But I have never heard of uh, putting a fraud alert or a freeze affecting your credit.
1: Right. And I'm. By the way, I'm putting a. Um... Uh, which one did I go with here? I am putting a freeze on my credit right now. So yeah,
0: there you go. And,
1: as a T-Mobile customer, and we'll see what what this looks like. And I imagine there are many, many, many details to come. But yeah, a uh, pretty huge bummer. If you're not in the midst of buying a house,
0: buying a car, taking out credit for for something, you know, then it's um it's probably not going to be an inconvenience to you at all. Um, Peggy's asking if the pin number is different than the password. Yes. You, you use your email and password to get access to your account. And usually they'll two factor, you know, authenticate you as well. But the pin code is, uh, is a, is a, I think a numeric code always. And that's one that you'll just give as you access your account. When you like call in, usually they'll say, and what's your pin? Um, so there, there are multiple pins, you know, the phone can have, uh, obviously a a passcode as far as, you know, getting past the lock screen and there could be other pins, but this is the carrier pin that is your account pin. And it's one that you, that generally, I mean, I've just given it verbally when I, when I call in to make an account change or access my account. Good questions. And it's good to have Peggy with us live. Um, Let's see. I think we had uh, another Security article. Oh, you just put the FTC in there. That's great. You want to talk about that one?
1: Yeah, that's just the differences between um, uh, fraud alerts and credit alerts. So we can share this link with, in our show notes. But in case you're curious about that topic, the FTC's got an excellent document for, for kind of uh, determining the difference between the two.
0: Very good. So here you go. No need to listen to Dave Ramsey, folks. You can just come here to the EdTech Situation Room. We're going to talk to you about cryptocurrency and your investment strategy following the knife method. <laughs> Which only involves Dogecoin. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs)
0: And on that note, actually, why don't I just skip to probably one of the weirder, um, well, two that I put under the, I was going to just do miscellaneous, but I put them under crypto and NFTs. So let's do the, let's do the crypto one first. So a podcast I've subscribed to for a while and enjoy periodically is called The Open Mind, hosted by Alexander Hefner. And the August 9th episode is an interview with Cornell trade economist Ezwar Prasad, who is also an author and has published a book about cryptocurrency. And it is absolutely fantastic. It's about 30 minutes long. I don't think, and I don't actually know because I'm not talking to economics teachers, you know, regularly, but I, I'd be very curious to know how much cryptocurrency figures into economics courses that we're teaching at the high school or the college level these days it is really important to talk about crypto because it's been, it's been emergent and it's now a force. And the, the you know billions of dollars at least, I don't know if it's trillions, but the billions of dollars at least that are represented by uh, different cryptocurrencies is, is quite staggering. I think it's fascinating also just to think about what money is and how money is whatever somebody says it is that people trust that enough people trust in order to give it value. I think back to probably 2011 <clears throat> when I was in Shanghai, I delayed my departure because we got done on September 10th and thought, uh, oh, probably not a great idea to fly on September 11th or whatever. We're just being cautious. And I got to tour the Shanghai museum that has an amazing exhibit all about Chinese currency and how they used to use like forks and silverware and, and, and you know, different things and, Anyway, it's just fascinating currencies. And and as they talk about in this podcast episode, you know, it wasn't that long ago that that central banks stepped in because we used to have lots of different regional organ, you know, states and things that would print print currency. Um, And and anyway, central banks and this idea of regulating things from a central standpoint is is relatively new. So that is an excellent article. And then the other one under this category that's kind of just bizarro weird is a motherboard article from August 17th. And the headline is free clip art of a cartoon rock is selling for $300,000 as an NFT. And we have talked a little bit about an NFT. Uh, It's basically a digital license to say, I own this thing digitally. And so again, kind of like Dogecoin that we've talked about that started off as a joke. Somebody decided to kind of, make an NFT as a joke using this free clip art of a rock. And they've got like a hundred different ones with different shadings and colors. And so they've had 581, uh, ether rock transition, uh, trans, um, transactions in the last two weeks. The current highest price paid for one was 96, uh, is it ethereum's or or i guess or is it i guess ethereum ethereum yeah yeah. and so um the listed price for a single one is about it's equivalent to three hundred thousand dollars today so dr knifer would you like to share any updates on from your from your seat of of dogecoin ownership any thoughts and then um would you like to be investing in a cartoon rock as an nft soon if there's still a chance
1: I still don't understand NFTs. I'm going to have to admit that one. Like I kind of get it if, you know, you own all the rights to an image that if it ever gets used, you get money back for it. But the problem is, is that that's the way it's supposed to work anyways, right? Like that's the way, you know, legitimate use of images work. So I, I, I will have to see. And I, you know, I know some smart people. In fact, uh, um, a brilliant former student uh, of mine uh, just finished up her master's degree, and she worked on a marketing project related to cryptocurrencies. And um, her her uh, uh, master's degrees in branding, and um, uh, she is an artist. So I'm I'm, I'm hoping at some point uh, that 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 uh miss carlson my former student can explain this to me a little better because i'm not sure if i get it yet but i i have dabbled in cryptocurrency investments mostly for the joke i i'm i'm uh, uh invested in dogecoin and so far the return has been you know nothing short of extraordinary but you know i didn't put much money into it and it it's not a ton of money now but a lot more than i started with and you know if it ever ends up turning into $60,000 uh uh, a bit like Bitcoin is per coin um, I'll, I'll be doing pretty well. But the point is, is that, um, you know, I think you make a, an, an important uh, note about how, all currencies are fake because we, we give them artificial value and any teacher that's run a token economy in their classroom has essentially created their own currency inside of a classroom I can remember at least uh, two elementary school teachers that that ran token economies, uh, this is back in the, the 1980s when that notion became very popular as a classroom management tool and you created a fake economy with fake currency that had real value to the people that were participating in the economy and so that that's an important thing to remember but But, you know, I don't know where this is going. The government's trying to regulate. In fact, part of I think it was the initial stimulus, traditional stimulus bill that's currently being considered by the House of Representatives includes taxation and regulation on cryptocurrencies. And, you know, I don't think you should regulated any more or less than you would any other currency and they certainly it, at some point uh, cryptocurrencies were just straight up considered illegal uh, uh, so you know it's progress that these markets can exist but you know it's something to keep an eye on and and you know you never know what the future is but from my very initial look into cryptocurrencies it seemed awfully interesting and also uh, a lot of advantages to it as a model.
0: It definitely highlights the importance of not forgetting your password <laughs> because if you, yeah. if you lose that, there's nobody to call, right? There is no, no central bank to call. There's, uh, you're, on, you're on your own, and people have done that, right? There's folks that have lost millions of dollars in Bitcoin you know, and they're because their hard drive crashed or whatever, and they didn't didn't have a backup. The one thing I'd say on NFTs is it just seems to me to be like artwork, right? I mean, who says the Mona Lisa should be worth this much or, you know, this different piece of art has this value. Uh, It's really sort of the eye of the beholder and then the perception of the marketplace and and what people are willing to pay for it. So it's really, really bizarre. Um, It seems like NFTs have allowed, you know, some people to really, you know, realize uh, some remarkable income um, where they would have not ever thought the marketplace was going to be able to to give them that. So, but I don't know, man. It is it is a weird thing, and that's probably one of those like if you ask the person on the street, you know, I mean, I don't think you're going to have a very high percentage of people are going to be, oh, yes. Let me tell you about NFTs. I understand them completely, and let me, you know, and in fact, I own some. Let me let me tell you about them. I mean, it's a really really. Fringe thing, but the the sums that we're talking about here are are substantial. So I guess some people just have a lot of disposable income, Jason. So I, maybe that's the bottom line. And so okay. they do do wild things.
1: Yeah, I can do wild things. Yeah, and you know, and, and by the way, there are hundreds of cryptocurrencies. Um, you know, I Dogecoin is is maybe considered uh, one of the ten or twenty most popular of them. But you probably heard of Bitcoin. But there's Arithium, which you, uh, uh, mentioned, uh, Moon. um, there's, uh, I believe there's alternatives to Bitcoin, Dogecoin called Dogcoin, right? So, I, there, there's just a lot of things out there. And remember, uh, Dogecoin was started as a joke. That's the other thing to note about Dogecoin is that it was started as a joke to make fun of Bitcoin. Yes. And now they're worth 32 cents a coin. And so, so
0: was the free, you know, clip art of the cartoon rock. Yeah. Um, Another one more thing to note about this it 's the role of influencers, you know having i think it was wasn 't it Elon Musk that talked about Dogecoin yeah. that helped push that up yeah, and so celebrities and different influencers play a huge role in these things, and now, like with cryptocurrency there's so many different options and they're they're trying to you know emerge from the from the pack um, it's just it 's pretty fascinating to see how important uh, influencers are, and that does remind me. That is a lesson, which I'm hoping to do early, at least with my sixth graders, maybe my fifth graders, um, to to just find out a little bit about the influencers in their lives, the kinds of products that they talk about um, and and raise awareness of the influence that they have. Um, Because probably there's a lot of these influencers that our teenagers are watching and listening to that we as adults have absolutely no idea who they are, you know, what they're saying, what they're, what they're promoting. And it it turns out that if, you know, some of them that are big enough promote a cryptocurrency or promote an NFT, oh my gosh, it suddenly, you know, has, has tons of value. So anyway, that may not have immediate impact on our lives as educators, but it's certainly a sign of a digital economy, a digital culture, um, you know and and uh a a pretty different world in some respects than you know th- now that we're now we'll just start sounding very old talking about the old days but
1: yep <laughs> true but still fun to talk about so still fun
0: to talk about okay so you put a couple of google articles in there i'd love though to hear about this apple one about podcasting subscriptions we talked about that a few weeks ago uh, i guess it's not going well
1: yeah. So, The Verge reported uh, today that there's been a lot of implementation issues regarding Apple's new um, uh, uh, attempt to uh, uh, create kind of an economy for podcasters by allowing you to get a, a subscription to a, a podcast via Apple's uh, podcast service, and it's all part of a larger expansion of Apple's interest in podcast as podcasting continues to grow extraordinarily in the, the, the vast media marketplace, but. I guess the thing here that I thought was interesting was that, uh, the software is pretty buggy is my understand, uh, is my understanding, um, the, uh, the software itself is, is kind of a mess and the interface isn't very good. But I also thought what was interesting, especially in light of the fact that uh, each, uh, both Wes and I know a guy that co runs a podcast, right? So uh, as podcasters, we have relatively few duties to be able to release this. Wes has got a good workflow; he does all the technical stuff on our podcast. Um, I'm guessing he probably takes about an hour or so a week. Plus, we obviously have the the research time for links, and then the actual hour we're recording the podcast. But that's about what it takes to do that. But um, a lot of smaller podcasts that I guess are more commercially oriented than our podcast are finding that to get your podcast out there on all platforms, the simplicity of the RSS feed, which is the technology that helped create podcasting, an automated way of announcing to software devices that new content was available, um, they're not RSS compatible. So if you want it on Apple and want to charge for it, you got to upload it to their servers and in their service and in their interface. And then if you want it on Spotify, you have to go to their interface and you have to upload it there to get it to feed into there. Now, my understanding is that at least the way we do it and how we host our podcast, um, which I believe is on the Amazon cloud. That's right. Yeah. And then, and Wes has got something that he's uh, 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 rigged together to make sure this all works. But, uh, eventually, Spotify found ours, right? Eventually, Apple found ours as we put it in various directories, um, uh, to share. But those that really rely on a consistent release and making sure that that uh, perhaps they're pulling from advertising servers, that it's turning into a pain to make sure it gets on all the platforms so they can appropriately uh, monetize the site. And so, uh, you know, anyone could podcast, that's true. And, and if if anything, our podcast is evidence of this, right? Uh, we're a couple of guys that, that can release to a global audience via some pretty easy to access technologies. But the bottom line is, is this has become a business for a lot of folks and the engagement time to produce is expanding
0: for the record we use the Podlove podcasting plugin for wordpress i'll drop the link in there and um yeah it's it's kind of crazy that article talks about you know small teams i guess there's been lots of processing time required and then errors where it just doesn't show up and on apple side and this is this is a tendency I think we've seen with certainly the news, you know, information landscape or ecosystem. And we're seeing it with podcasting and it's the move to, frac- you know, a fractured world where Spotify has their, you know, platform and Apple has their platform. And I guess Patreon, these different places and wanting you to upload. So um, I don't remember. It was a couple of weeks ago, I think, where you had that article about sort of like the day the good web died or something like that. I, I read that article afterwards. And thinking about RSS, thinking about Google Reader, um, you know, maybe these are technologies that still can live on. Um, the the web has, in some ways, or maybe in many ways, been high, hijacked by corporations, right? Hijacked by um, you know Facebook and and uh, surveillance capitalism companies that that are cashing in on the data that we're willing to share. You know, when we use these free tools, um, I uh, I really do lament the uh, The demise of r s s and google reader and and those kinds of things because they they just allowed for such a free flow of information, um, but it didn't have the gatekeepers and it didn't have the advertising and it didn't have you know a lot of the things that that you know some people would argue is is allowing for monetization and that kind of thing. China has a very different environment for podcasting. We talked about this weeks ago, but they evidently did not start out as a free ecosystem for podcasting. It's always been a paid situation and podcasting is, is, is really doing well there, but it's all coming from a frame of, of paying and subscribing, you know, and not having free access. So Peggy's asking in the chat, why, you know, small teams would choose to use the Apple podcast. I'm sure people are asking that, but I mean, Apple is huge, right? And again, thinking about influencers, Apple's a huge influencer. And if your podcast can be featured, I mean, you know, back in the day, late to mid mid to late 2000s, I started my podcast, you know, back in 2005. I mean, my moving at the speed yep. of creativity podcast was yep. one of the top educational technology podcasts. Guess what? There weren't that many. <laughs> and, but it was, that was really cool and really, really amazing. And um, you know, it's, I, I actually need to revisit that because I have not taken that podcast down, but somehow it, it got broken with Apple and I have, I have, It's like one of these things that I do every once in a while and I'll spend some time at it and then I'll go, have to go off and do something else and it hasn't been resolved, but my registration for my original speed of creativity podcast is, is broken with Apple. Um, so, you know, I'm not losing sleep over it and I've, I only have put up a podcast probably every month or so. It's not, this is, this is the regular podcast for me. Um, but anyway, it, it's, um, hopefully Apple is going to work through these issues and folks are going to be able to monetize their content, but we've seen lots of attempts. I think, you know, Patreon and Substack are two areas right now where, and then YouTube where, where creators are having a lot of success. I'm sure there's other areas as well, but um, you know, we're, we're, I don't know. We're, we're still not dabbling in advertising. And frankly, the little dabbling I did in that was just, you know, somebody asked me the other day about affiliate links in Amazon. It's like, yes, could I do those? Okay. Is that going to bring in much money? No, (laughs) you know, it's just a really, really small amount of money. So it's honestly pretty fun and liberating to just not have to worry about, you know, messing with all of that. Uh, We appreciate those of you who listen to the show and hope that you, you know, have, we bring you some value in in filtering the news and talking about it. But honestly, Jason and I just kind of like meeting every week for an hour. So just so happens, that, yeah. You know, it's fun to share it out as well. But
1: if if we we're in the same town, there would be a glass of beer involved. But oh, if yeah. you know, since we're a distance, it involves a, a you know a couple of cameras and some microphones.
0: You there, know. the distance could be reduced, so there'll probably be an announcement made on the show here in the next you know month or so uh, of, of, of a of a quest that may involve yeah some some change in venue for for certain for at least one 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 host So. <laughs> Not to just totally give it away there, but
1: yeah. Yeah. ladies and gentlemen, Doctor <laughs> Fryer is going to space. So yeah, that's right. Elon Musk is. Elon
0: has called. That's right. I'm not going with Blue Origin. I'm gonna. I'm gonna choose SpaceX. So I don't think. Go. Don't think my physique is quite you know astronaut <laughs> approved. Quite yeah. Definitely not. So. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, hey, uh, I'm glad we did that Apple article. Yeah. Um, we definitely need. Let's see. We got. We got about 20 minutes. Um, I think we definitely need to talk about some of the social media articles. Yeah. So, so would you like to start with
1: that Facebook one that you put? I would. Um, I've spent 20 minutes reading this article, so I'm by no means an expert of it. And by article, I mean a report. But uh, on, I didn't realize that Facebook, until I, I had read about this, had a transparency site. But if you go to transparency.fb.com, um, it does provide a lot of, of, of data uh, as part of their transparency. And uh, the particular link I'm sharing is the quarter to 2021 widely viewed content report, what people see on Facebook. And the reason why I, I want to share this is that, um, you know, and, and I'm sure that this is in part the point of Facebook sharing this data, but for all the hand we do about Facebook, and maybe I'm playing into their argument most of the stuff shared on Facebook is still banality, right? And, 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 delightfully so, right? It's things like, uh, you know, share a picture, um, uh, of, of you, you know, graduating from high school or, you know, the first three words you see are your reality. And, um, uh, uh, please don't settle this debate. The sugar go in spaghetti, like that kind of content, um, all across the way. And in fact, um, you know, the only, uh, uh, reference to politics I saw on the top 10, um, was, uh, a sharing a tweet that, that Joe Biden had shared about the first hundred days. I'm sure it, it, it sparked a lot of conversation in both directions. But it is interesting that Facebook is, is releasing this data. And in part, maybe the reason they're releasing this data is because they're looking to build a, a, um, a, a bit of a narrative that for all the hand-wringing people do about Facebook, and that includes me for certain, and I have a certain disgust with Facebook too, the vast majority of stuff um, um, uh, has to do with um, uh, uh, just day-to-day random banter between people. So,
0: There's a graph, and I, I have not read the article yet. I was just scanning scanning it, but, but a very interesting graph it has is the source of newsfeed content views in the United States and over half 57% are from posts that friends and people followed. Um, About a fifth, 20% 19.3 is from groups that people joined. And then there's also pages. Um, But that this is also a real sign of the times, right? There's so many people that still do watch mainstream media, mainstream news. I mean, that has a large following, but I would actually, that I don't know that this report will do that, but I'd like to see a comparison of how many people are primarily social media sourced news consumers and then how many people are, you know, still television or newspaper or print media or some, you know, more traditional uh, news media. It'd also be interesting to know how this has changed since we've had, you know, someone else move into the White House. I I mean, i just was, it was incredible to see. How much discussion there was about Twitter and tweets, um, you know, in the four years of the of the Trump administration, uh, that's that's definitely, you know, gone down. But, yeah, I'm I, uh, very interested in this, too. And that looks like a great report to look at. Um, I put an article. Uh, related here a little bit from Yale news, but this was a, a research uh, paper that just came out uh, published by some scholars at Yale university. <clears throat> and it was from August the 13th, likes and shares teach people to express more outrage online. And so not only were they in this study looking at, um, at, at social media posts that people are just organically, you know, voluntarily creating and putting out there, but there was some controlled experimentation in terms of looking at how people will, would respond. And so, um, I'll read a little bit from the, from the end of the study. It says that, um, our studies find that people with politically moderate friends and followers are more sensitive to social feedback, meaning do they get likes? Do they get shares? Do they get comments? says, this suggests a mechanism for how moderate groups can become politically radicalized over time. The rewards of social media create a positive feedback loop that exacerbates outrage. And it says that it doesn't say whether that's po- positive or negative, but it does show um, that social media's business model, which optimizes for user engagement – Uh, amplification of moral outrage is is a clear consequence. And so this ties to things we've talked about a lot under the the title of the tech correction. We've talked about the Netflix uh, series or not series, the Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma, which came out last fall. Um, And to share one other related article and then we'll um, toss it to you. I listened to a great, great interview with Roger McNamee. Roger McNamee is the author of the book Zucked. He is the investment guy who was the counselor of Mark Zuckerberg, counseling him to not sell to Yahoo for a billion dollars and how he could structure the business so that he could maintain control. He's the one that brought Sheryl Sandberg over from Facebook or sorry, from Google to Facebook Um, and so this podcast interview, um, was on a podcast called the Sunday show. This was from August the 15th. I have not read his book Zucked, but one of the biggest things that he is investing his time with, and he's partnered with Tristan Harris at the center for humane technology is that the design of Facebook and the design of many social media platforms is to focus on outrage and fear. And we are just wired as human beings to respond to these things, right? It's the reptilian brain that kicks in. We we feel we're threatened. Uh, we have these emotional responses. And so, you know, that article, the, the research report that you just referenced, this Yale report, you know, they point to a key <laughs> fundamental foundational part of the surveillance capitalism economy that we live in, and that is that these social media companies have been able to create products, which optimize for engagement. And they find that, you know, content that we get emotional about, that we fear that we're outraged about, you know, that kind of content is the stuff that we just basically can't help, but look at and think about and click on and share. And that is driving a, a, a You know, tremendous profits for these companies, but it also has a lot of other implications for our society and especially for this idea that we're, you know, very polarized and we're also having different perceptions of facts today. And that begs the question of whether a representative democracy can continue to function as it should, you know, when large swaths of people, for instance, disagree on who won or lost an election. And we we're living in that time right now. So. Your thoughts, Doctor Neifer?
1: Um, yeah, I, it, I, I, so many of them I might not be able to articulate one uh, super clearly, but you know, one thing to remember is that, uh, and we talked about this actually. This was a this was a, a topic we talked about several times in the early days of our podcast. But remember, these technologies come with a design that is intended to hack your brain a little bit, right? And that understanding I think is so important that. Uh, you know, the same psychology that goes into making Vegas gambling machines addictive also makes social media and games and other connection technologies quite addictive. It's essentially used the notion of gamification, which is something that uh, uh, a lot of educators hear a lot about, uh, and, and pulling those technologies to engage you in a way Maybe you're not all that interested in being engaged, and and I think that's something to be extremely cognizant about. But also, um, and, and I don't know, maybe these 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 tech, these conversations about technology go on in classrooms. But if you're not, and it doesn't really matter what you're teaching or who you're teaching, I think you, as an adult, a savvy adult, owe it to your kiddos to 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 start making these into a, a important classroom conversations. Because I still think this technology is, you know, uh I'm still amazed by it every single day and the cool things that, that we've built with this technology, but it doesn't mean there's not cost to it. And it doesn't mean that power can be used for something other than awesomeness.
0: One more article under the social media heading. Uh, This was NBC news on August 11th. As vaccine mandates spread protests, follow some spurred by nurses. And there are specific references here to TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, um, again, this amplification dynamic. And what they're saying is, you know, across the whole spectrum of healthcare providers, we don't like have this critical mass of nurses and doctors that are all anti vax, but there are some. Yeah. And what happens whenever one of those people seem to be vocal against vaccinations specifically? is that gets amplified hugely by the anti-vax community. And so there is an, an outsized amplification of those voices. And those people are, you know, the, the anti-vaxxers are are then using the veneer of credibility and, and, you know, medical authority that comes with, I'm a nurse. I, you know, I work in a hospital. Um, there was a term here that I hadn't heard before that talked about the alignment of their, um, when they, when they post those, let me see if I can find that. Um, and it basically just means that, you know, they're, they're amplifying for the, for the purpose of, um, you know, they're, they're they're having an alignment in their views. And anyway, I'll have to, I'll have to try to find, find that, but, uh, again, um, platforms are trying to address this. It says TikTok is trying to limit the spread of misinformation. Um, But, but the app is a huge, you know, outlet for people who are, um, you know, pushing agendas, including the anti-vax agenda. And um, so this is one of the things that, that uh, Robert, um, is it McAvee, Um, the author of Zucked. uh, One of the things that he says, McNamee is, you know, our attention span with media tends to be very limited. And so we had a lot of attention with the the documentary coming out and there were conversations with members of Congress, et cetera, last fall, but we've seen, you know, some of that sort of, sort of Peter out. So will there be legislation for the tech correction? Will there be, you know, some kind of privacy law, for instance, in the United States, like we we've seen the uh, GDPR in, in Europe Um, there doesn't seem to be, you know as as much media focus today and as much of a groundswell of support but there are folks that are working for this um, the Center for Humane technology is, is still at work and um you know it's just the forces arrayed against them are are huge they're formidable right it's you know facebook it's uh it's it's google it's it's Amazon um we're hearing about lawsuits and things like that that are being filed but you know, it doesn't it doesn't seem to me like we're imminently on the edge of having some kind of, of earth shaking, ground changing regulation that, that's going to address this. So, yeah, we need to keep talking about it with our kids, talking about how folks are hacking our minds, uh, thinking about the choices that we're making, um, you know, and, and just, you know, we we shouldn't give up. But it uh, it appears that these systems themselves, as we've just mentioned, are are engineered and designed in ways that really you know media literacy education can 't defeat <laughs> because the the underlying psychologies of, of just the human brain and what we what we want to pay attention to and what we just can 't help you know paying attention to it, it's it 's just designed to to maximize that um, Peggy 's mentioning in the chat it 's upsetting to see healthcare providers refusing to get vaccinated promoting their position and and it is and that 's just um, you know, again, it's one of these things where the out outliers can have an outsized voice, and and we certainly, um, we certainly see that. But we on, not that we need to go down the COVID hole, but our hospitals are maxed out here in Oklahoma. One yeah. of our science teachers just had a a relative, you know, go to the ER, and um, we're at the the same levels of of the highest hospitalization beds, ICU beds being utilized in January, February, we're there now. And we're just going to keep on going up. They said into early, early September. Um, Yeah. So it is a, it is a tough time and we're back to school today. We're taking precautions. We're wearing masks, but you know, it's almost, it's just as uncertain this fall. I feel like in terms of what lies ahead as we, as we felt last fall. So yeah. All right, well, lift us up with some, some positive tech news, oh. Dr. Knifer. Do you have any uh,
1: any good – I think there's some good Google news in here and yeah. some other
0: stuff. So There's four quick those?
1: kind of more hard tech articles that we can go through at uh, 90 seconds apiece or so. Um, Paul Therott reported on com on August 9th that Google is building a campus just for hardware. And the reason why I want to mention that is because I think you've seen this a lot in Microsoft, but the age-old notion that uh, company-making – everything including the hardware plus the software stack leads to some magical things and i think that's one of the reasons why apple has had so much success over time is because they don't design to a mass audience with their software they they design only to their own hardware and i think microsoft figured that out too that uh in my humble opinion the experience in the newest versions of windows is better on microsoft hardware than it is on uh, almost any other hardware platform and if google's getting into that business They already make their own phones, um, and they also make a Chromebook every year and a half or so. But if they start doing that more expansively or make different form factors of Chromebooks or uh, additional form factors of phones, I think that's great for the market.
0: I think those folks will be working in the office. We talked last week about this uh, fight that's been happening in in many tech companies today uh, between remote, you know, the desire for workers to remain remote and, you know, desire for companies to say, Hey, we've got these facilities. We need to to put people in them. So in producing hardware, I don't think that is going to be something unless, you know, robot technologies. Anyway, we're, 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 we're away from that where I think we're going to be able to do that kind of work as effectively remotely as we could in person. So that is exciting because competition is good and let's see Google continue to innovate. Uh, it mentions in the article, the purchase of, I think HTC and then with Nest, um, you know, we're continuing to invest in our family in the in the Google ecosystem and have been pretty happy with those those products and I I'm excited to hopefully see them continue to improve because honestly Siri's not doing it for me. So
1: yeah, I still have sure. to use Siri, but anyway, Google Assistant is the one I go to whenever I can. Yep. Okay, uh, two quick video conferencing articles. Uh, the first one is in Gadget reported on August 13th that Google Meet moderation will be easier because now you can have up to 25 co-hosts. So in other words, um, if you're running a large meeting or even a meeting where you want you know other people to have uh, hosting duties, one of the reasons why I like uh, to have have multiple people have hosting duties is in case my state my connection is unstable. And I have to drop out of the meeting and sometimes it'll close a meeting down. If you don't have a co-host there, but it's always good, I think, plan for contingencies. And then the other uh, uh, uh video conferencing news, Zoom, is uh, releasing something called Focus Mode, which is kind of a tool made for the classroom. But basically, it allows you to say that students can see you and they can see themselves, and they can see what you're sharing, but they can't see anyone else. So there's less incentive, you know, for kids to be silly in, in Zoom windows as part of that process. Um, now I have to say that, I mean, I can imagine using that and finding use to that. I think you have to balance that with, I do think the humanness of having 25 faces, uh, you know, Brady Bunch style in your, uh, window, I think is very important for human connection purposes, but I could see, effortlessly flowing in and out of this, uh, assuming it's just a click away, I think would be a really interesting way to help change focus and do good things you would do in the classroom to help transition from one activity to another.
0: Well, I will say a lot of the announcements that we've heard Google make, the changes they've made, and if you haven't checked out Meet in the last month um, or even a few weeks, you know, there's some really, really good updates. But I, I think they're continuing to kind of Zoomify a little bit but some of those things with co-hosts and, and I mean, there's been some real frustrating uh, things that can be, can be frustrating. Um, So glad, glad to see Google continuing to make those changes. And there was, was there a zoom classroom project or something like that, that they were doing that we talked about a while back? It seems like there was something that was really focused on education.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think, and and to be honest, I wouldn't uh, doubt that, uh, I'm assuming that they have, you know, it's cla- a-
0: Yeah, okay, it's class.com, the virtual classroom built on Zoom, and uh, yeah, take attendance, hand out assignments, give a quiz, grade work, talk one-on-one. So it's a, it's a product by Class Technologies, mm, but it looks like it's an add-on. I don't know; that may not be it, but hmm. I just visited with a friend who's in Florida uh, because of construction. They're actually starting two weeks remote for their high school. They're not having to do that with the other um, grades. I think that's well-timed with the um, Delta variant and and COVID and everything like that. But um, yeah, who knows? We don't know what the future holds and we could end up, you know, needing to go remote. I think a lot of this is going to depend on, you know, how many, how many teachers we have get sick and go out. Um, you know, we can have kids go out and, and, and quarantine and whatever, but You know, you've only got so many teachers and so many substitutes and that kind of thing like that. So um, don't forget those remote learning skills, folks. We all learned a lot of things in the last year and a half, and many of those things can help us in the face-to-face class. But we may need to do some remote things before the 21-22 school year is is said and done. Time will tell. Absolutely. Okay. All right. A couple more.
1: Yeah, one very quick one. Uh, we reported a couple of weeks back that Windows is working on their next uh, a major new version of Windows. It's called Windows 11. And um, I purposely not done this because I'm not looking for a distraction right now. But if you're someone that's curious about it or you're an IT director or you're going to start making recommendations, whether to stay with 10 or move to 11, uh, there's lots of ways to get the free update uh, because it is fr- freely updatable from the current version of Windows 10. Um, but you, know, you may want to start experimenting because there are beta versions available to allow you to download it right now and start to experiment with it. So I've read interesting reviews about it. Most of them have been positive, um, but, you know, just a warning that a shift is coming soon. And a little back channel, going back to the previous
0: article, Peggy's, you know, offering that it, it doesn't sound too great to be, you know, using your, you know, a virtual environment, you know, classroom management tool to to stop interaction, that would be my thought is if we're going to zoom or we're going to video conference with Meet or whatever, we need to be interactive. Right. And if what you're trying to do is broadcast information, then, then make a video, you know, record a podcast, do something, you know, flip your flip your, your learning, but Hey, when we're interactive, it's important to be interactive. Yeah. I won't be uh, downloading windows 11. In fact, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know that I'm going to be doing anything with windows ever, but you know, who knows? Maybe I'll, Maybe I'll end up someday going to another school. That's all windows, but we kind of doubt it.
1: (laughs) There it is. Okay. I think that's all I have for the week. All right.
0: That sounds good. Well, you know, I think we just about covered all of the bases. So we're almost to the top of the hour here. Um, I'll do my geek of the week real quick. I actually only have one, Um, but this came from a video, which is uh, like these 90 second updates that Google Education does and it, they really are great they're doing those monthly. Uh this is called the Chromebook App Hub. So you can find this at chromebookapphub.withgoogle.com and um I had never seen this before. There are a lot of different um, you know websites, uh web apps uh they can be utilized with chromebooks of course these could also be you know utilized in in the chrome browser or probably another browser as well um but the neat thing is you can look down on the left under filters and so there's app categories uh there's integrations and optimizations that you can look for um and uh, for instance if you wanted to look for uh you know collaborative tools you can do that digital uh literacy digital citizenship you know typical math, um, you know, social science, things like that storytelling. Um, but it just is fantastic. And it's a, it's an excellent collection of tools and resources. So check it out. The Chromebook
1: app hub. Excellent. And then I want to share. Uh, this is a tip that that I talk a lot about when it when I when I talk about you know helping students understand, or helping teachers, helping students understand how to be masterful users of the web. But um, almost every major browser, either by plugin or by by native functionality, has what's called a reader mode, which takes a web based article, it strips away most of the advertising, many of the distracting media components, and turns it into something that's relatively close to a nice clean printed page on your screen and if you're sending kids out a lot to the web the web is built to keep you there and then send you on your way to other clicks oftentimes to advertising but if you can teach students that the best way to read the web is to see the article process it through a reader mode, I think that's a really winning combination to provide uh, a masterful tech savvy advice to, to your, your students. And so I'm linking this week to a wonderful life hacker article uh, that talks about this in detail and tells you on every browser, what you would need to install to add a reader mode uh, across the browser of sphere.
0: Absolutely. And I would add to that. If, if, if you are hopefully using an ad blocker today, uBlock origin is my blocker of choice it's important to look at what your students are looking at and they could be seeing an incredibly advertising, you know, distracted, uh, you know, version of, of articles and videos and, and things like that. So one of the things I'll be teaching all my students soon is to add a uBlock origin and absolutely using a tool, uh, like you said, that's going to go into a, a reader mode and strip out distractions, you know, trying to, be productive and minimize distraction, unwanted distractions in our lives. It's like, that's a, that's a key for everybody. So very important tool. All right. Well, I guess I'm the host. So it's my turn to wrap it up. Uh, Dr. Neifer, where can folks find you when you're uh, not here on Wednesday nights?
1: Hey, best place to find me is Twitter tech savvy teach and you serve.
0: I am at WFryer on Twitter, or you can go to my newly updated website, which rumor has may have some more updates coming soon at WestFryer.com. And I've got a connect link to link out to all of the places where I'm sharing. So we want to thank everybody for being attentive. Thanks, Peggy, for being here live with us. As always, we're sorry to hear about the flooding and too much rain in Arizona. Oh, man, it's been crazy, but I'm thankful uh, that, we, that we're getting some rain and I'm especially thankful in Montana that those fires will hopefully be, be uh, you know, positively affected by, by the rain. So we want to encourage everybody to check out our show notes. You can find MP3 audio versions and smaller video versions of our site, of our show on edtechsr.com as well as the show notes that we talked about in tonight's show. You can always subscribe to us on YouTube and the best way to find out what's happening because periodically we do take a week off here and there Uh, is to follow us on Twitter, and that is at EdTechSR. So until next time, we encourage everybody to stay savvy, stay safe, and if you're a T-Mobile user, it's probably time to make some credit company contacts. Not to end on a low note, but hey, download
1: Windows 11 for free. There's your good positive. Good
0: night.